Father God, we ask that you would help us now to bless you, to forget not your benefits. You are the one who heals all our diseases, forgives all our sin, crowns us with love and compassion, renews our desire like the eagle. You're the one who separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we ask now that you would help us to remember what we have in Christ and that it's all from you. And it's because of you that we are in Christ Jesus. And we ask that you would open eyes today to understand this text, that it would root out jealousy and envy and quarreling, strife, discord, grow our church in breadth and depth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if this picture looks familiar to you guys this morning. Do you guys know who, who these two guys are here? Who knows who these two gentlemen are? That's Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And when you think Steve Jobs, you think Apple products. And when you hear Bill Gates, you think Microsoft products. These two men are easily in the top 20 most influential people in our country over the past 40 years. They've shaped so much of the computer revolution, technology revolution in our country. And they've shared this interesting relationship. And if you've, any of, some of you probably read Walter Isaacson's biography of, of uh, uh, Steve, Steve Jobs, and there's a chapter that's just called Gates and Jobs, When Orbits Intersect. And it's a very interesting 10-page read of uh, their relationship. And Apple was actually much bigger than Microsoft initially, and Steve Jobs brought in Bill Gates and Microsoft to run some of the software programs for this very popular Apple II PC back in the day. And Bill Gates uh, and Microsoft at one point had more workers in their company working on the Apple than, than Apple did. And they helped him get going with BASIC and Excel and uh, but things blew up in the mid-80s when Bill Gates went forward with his, micro, with his Windows product, which Steve Jobs thought he was stealing from him. And a furious uh, Jobs, he let Bill Gates have it and thought that he was ripping off Macintosh. But Bill Gates didn't care because he knew that this was going to be the next big thing, and he didn't think that Apple had the exclusive rights to the idea. I'm going somewhere with this. So. So as a result, when that thing blew up in, in 1985 and this relationship between them, um, they both kind of took the idea from Xerox. Um, and I wanted to give you a few quotes to show how these two really became bitter, bitter rivals. And, uh, and I think even today, we have some that say, I follow Jobs, and others say, Gates. I either, I hate the iPhone, or I love the iPhone. And uh, it's funny, even Kim and I, I have an Android, she has an iPhone, and when one's driving and the other's texting for us and the personal secretary, we both frustrate each other's phone because we don't think it's intuitive to what we are used to. And, um, but here's a couple of things that they said about each other. Jobs said about Bill Gates, he just shamelessly ripped off other people's ideas. They just ripped us off comp completely because Gates has no shame. Gates reply, if he believes that, he's really entered into one of his own reality distortion fields. And the famous quote by Bill Gates was to Steve when Steve was saying, you've, you know, you've stolen this from him. And he says, well, Steve, 
I think there's more, more than one way of looking at it. I think it's more like we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox, and I broke into the house to steal the TV, to, see, to steal the CV set, and found out that you'd already stolen it. <laughs> and Steve Jobs said, the only problem with Microsoft is they just have no taste. They have absolutely no taste. I don't mean that in a small way. I mean that in a big way, in the sense that they don't, they don't think of original ideas and they don't bring much culture into their product. Bill Gates. I know his technology. It's nothing but a warmed-over Unix, and you'll never be able to make it work on your machines. Don't you understand that Steve doesn't know anything about technology? He's just a super salesman. I can't believe you're making such a stupid decision. He doesn't know anything about engineering, and 99% of what he says and thinks is wrong. Jobs. Bill is basically unimaginative, and he's never invented anything, which is why I think he's more comfortable now in philanthropy than technology. Gates. Steve Jobs was fundamentally odd and weirdly flawed as a human being. He never really cared much about technology, but he had an amazing instinct for what works. So even when a compliment, there's always a veiled attack. Jobs on Microsoft's open model. Of course his fragmented model worked, but it didn't really make great products, it produced crappy products. Bill Gates on the iPad. It's a nice reader, but there's nothing on the iPad I look at and say, oh, I wish Microsoft had done it. Perhaps the best summary was from Andy Hertzfield, who said in... Isaacson biography about each one. He said each one thought that he was smarter than the other one. But Steve generally treated Bill as someone who was slightly inferior, especially in matters of taste and style. And then he said, but Bill looked down on Steve because he couldn't actually program. And so the point is, is what do these two sound like as you start hearing these quotes? They sound like infants. They sound like kids. And some follow Jobs, some follow, follow Gates, and it's just um, a very much like what Paul is saying here. Is that there were three big names in the in the Corinthian church? They were Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, or Peter, and each had their following, and each group began to elevate their party leader. And Paul's point in one four, one through four is, you all are a bunch of infants. I can't even, I, you're still on milk. I can't even give you solid food. This is a, verses 1 to 4 is a spiritual cancer, and verses 5 to 9 is the spiritual cure. So let's look at the cancer, and let's look at the cure. So verses 1 to 4, we have this problem. And the problem is, is he's addressing them not as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not solid food. Ouch. Now, if some of you read the announcements this week in the bulletin I sent out, that I don't remember anything that my kindergartner ever said to me except for one threat she made to me when I was acting like a baby. I don't know what I was doing, but she threatened that she was going to put a diaper on me if I did not quit, quit acting like a baby. And I got to tell you, I really thought she was serious. I thought she was going to put a diaper on me in front of the whole class. It worked. What a rebuke. I mean, that threat just horrified me. I mean, I still remember it. Well, because that was embarrassing. Well, how embarrassing for this Christian church, Corinthian church, to be publicly rebuked now, that here we are still reading about them, that you are infants and not even ready for solid food. Now, the interesting thing about the church here in Corinth is they must have grown. They must have definitely grown in breadth. It's just not growing in depth. They were wide, but they weren't deep. And, the re and so the, they're, they're celebrating this breadth 
that there must be having some influence because the, the constant rebuke throughout the whole book, I mean, we're calling this humble truths for a proud church because they're constantly being told, are you not puffed up? Are you not conceited? Uh, love, you know, love builds up, but knowledge puffeth up, and they're just constantly being rebuked, even with love is patience, love is kind. You know, it's, not, it's not arrogant because they were constantly being uh, called out for their pride, but some of their pride was they had grown. And so, and they're thinking, well, it, it must be because of Apollos. No, no, it wasn't him. It was, it was Paul. He was the one. No, no, it was really, it was Cephas. And they're each lifting up their group and their party leader and saying, no, it's really all about them. And as a result, when this starts to happen, you start to get division. It's, it's a cancer. And it's, and it's natural in, in groups in churches that some will naturally gravitate towards certain shepherds. That's, that's a healthy thing. But if we start comparing shepherds or having rivalry, then it's a bad thing. And I've seen this now because I'm getting a little older, and I've seen over the years where I've looked at, at, at certain seminaries, certain missions programs, that sadly they became known for a party spirit you know back in the day at RTS it was you were either of, of R.C. Sproul or you were of Richard Pratt and Pratt had a much greater following in the seminary than Sproul did but Sproul was the one that had the big name and, and all the books these two guys didn't like each other and here they are two teachers at a school well, students began to follow either you're, you're an evidentialist or you're a presuppositionalist and really, they, they, they disagreed on so little, and yet the followers were either of Pratt or of Sproul. And it was this huge, divisive thing that was existing at a seminary. I've seen it at other seminaries, too. I can tell you stories, but it's, it's sad. You think, well, this is a seminary. You think it's all about Jesus. Well, what do you think happens at secular universities? And where you get one professor in this department, and he, he writes the book. And then another guy says, well, I want to be the big cheese. I want to write the book. And then they start to put down so-and-so's theory. And basically, they're trying to get a bigger following for themselves. And you're like, man, that sounds like a lot like the world. Well, that's what Paul says three times here. You're of the flesh, of the flesh. Verse 1, of the flesh. Verse 3, twice, of the flesh, of the flesh. And then twice, Human, merely human. Are you not acting human? So three times he tells them you're of the flesh and twice they're human and yet they're supposed to have the mind of Christ. That's how the chapter two ends is that we have the mind of Christ. And he's saying you have the mind of Christ then how come you're of the flesh? You see what Paul's doing here is, is this is like Romans 7 in Corinthians. You know, Romans 7, you have this paradigm of how believers struggle with indwelling sin and, and light of who you are in Romans 6 and you've been placed in Christ and united to him, then how come you struggle with sin? But we do. You're like, how can that be? Well, that's exactly what's going on here is like, you have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit's come into your life now. Here the Spirit's now come down in you. And what is, what is the mind of Christ? It's the mind of Christ that we can understand God's word and enable to understand the revelation. But more than that, it's to have the mind of Christ is now to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than ourselves and not to, you know, to look after others' interests rather than our own. 
that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, right? Who being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, and he, and he was disobedient all the way to, to death on a cross. That Jesus didn't take the high road, he took the low road and went as low as he could possibly go for us. And so he says, do nothing out of rivalry. That's what selfish ambition, this word rivalry is this idea of competition. Do nothing out of competition. Do nothing out of one-upmanship. Do nothing of, of trying to preach the gospel so that my church will be bigger than the church down the street. So that I can get more followers to follow my Facebook and to follow my posts so that I can get more people to like me. And then we're preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. It's Philippians 1. It's not the mind of Christ. And so what happens when a church starts to do that or a seminary, I've seen it on the mission field. I've seen missionaries on certain places. I mean, we, we, you know, Mission of the World had, had a work in, in Haiti, and we had, we had missionaries in two places, and, and they were each appealing to two different groups of people. And they were doing two different works on the island, but they were in competition with each other. And so which group are you want to be a part of in this work in Haiti? Were you part of that group or part of that group? And each one spoke bad about the other group. You want to come and be a part of You want to come do the work over here on this part of the island, not this part of the island. Then the same thing happened in a city. M&A had a work at a, at a city, and there was four different works going on in that city, and the, and the works were competing, and they're competing for money and for short-term trips. And so they're, you know, they're partnering, and they're, but they're speaking bad about the other group. You don't want to be a part of that. You know, that's not good. You need to come be a part of us. And what's behind it? It's jealousy and strife. Isn't that what he says here? When there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving <clears throat> only in a human way? Benjamin Franklin once said, to find out a girl's faults, praise her to her girlfriends. To find out a girl's faults, praise her to her girlfriends. Why would he say that? Because the heart of man naturally inclines, <clears throat> may incline towards jealousy of the flesh. Thomas Aquinas said that the object both of charity and of envy or jealousy is our neighbor's good. That's the object, but by contrary movements. Since charity rejoices in our neighbor's good, envy grieves over it. Envy is a special sorrow over another's goods. That's jealousy. But see, jealousy is even worse. Jealousy is worse than envy. Because envy is not only a sorrow over another's goods, but it's worse. Because ultimately, jealousy is an intolerance of rivalry. So God's the only one that can have this healthy intolerance of rivalry. He's a jealous God. He doesn't want any rivals. But we don't want any rivals either. Steve Jobs didn't want a rival, and neither did Bill Gates. They're both trying to crush the other, and it's to try to bring the other one down. So jealousy, we're told, wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy because it's worse? I mean, is it not jealousy that, that put Joseph in the pit? Because his brothers got jealous, and so not just envious of, of that he has the robe, but we've got to do something to get rid of him. Let's put him in the pit. And when Saul heard the song, and all was good when he heard Saul has slain his thousands, that sounded great until he heard the second half, that David has killed his tens of thousands. Ho, ho, ho. Then the spear was lifted up. Then David was on the run. And now the spears are being thrown at David. Because he, see, jealousy is worse. It's got to kill. It's got to get rid of them. 
There's a story that's told of two men who lived in a certain city. One was envious or jealous and the other covetous. The ruler of the city sent for them and he said he wanted to grant them each one which, with the provision that the one who would choose first would get exactly what he asked for, while the other man would get exactly twice what the first man asked for himself. And he told the jealous person to go first. And he found himself in a quandary. He wanted to choose something great for himself, but he realized the other would get twice as much. And he thought about it for a while, and then he asked that one of his eyes be put out. You see, that's jealousy. That's cancer in a church. If you cannot rejoice in the, in the, in the good of every other ministry in the church, then you got cancer. You want more people in your Sunday school class over another, or if this class is taken away from the children's ministry, or taken away from the youth ministry, or this small group's now pulling away from that, I want to be in this one. And then you're not excited about another one? Or you're excited when a church is, is falling apart and people start coming to this church and you rejoice over that? That's cancer. That, that's, that's a spiritual cancer. And that's what was going on in Corinth is now they're starting to come apart and there's this jealousy. When we're growing and you break a bone at the growth plate, what happens? I'm not a doctor, but my understanding is that, you know, it's not good. It stunts your growth. Well, the Corinthians had a compound fracture. It was called jealousy and strife. And the growth plate was now being affected. And they're not growing. They're stunted in growth. And they could not go on and get real food until they get rid of this jealousy and they get rid of this strife. And this crazy thing about false teachers is that this is what they do. The fruit of their ministry will be jealousy and strife. We're told this in a few places. It says about unbelievers in Romans 1, as they're spiraling down at the end of Romans 1, it said they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them over to a debased mind. So instead of having the mind of Christ, they're being given over, these unbelievers are given over to a debased mind. And the word debased is the word actually for dross. Like, they're of no value. And it says they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, covetous, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then it says they teach others to become like them, to follow along with them. It's bad news. Paul warned against this. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so we need to come back and remember who we are in Christ, that we have the mind of Christ, and the mind of Christ in us, the Spirit of God now working in us, changing and conforming us to the image of Christ, is that we make much of Him and not of ourselves, and we follow Him, and we do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility now, considering others more significant than ourselves, and we look not only to our own interests, but to the interest of others. And so this idea of, of rivalry and jealousy 
is just the, the root of this word rivalry. It also means resentfulness. And it's a rivalry. And so Paul warned against that in Philippians where people were preaching the gospel out of a sense of rivalry. Wanting to be better than somebody else. Wanting to make more people think that they're better. It's not about us. So now the Spirit of Christ is now at work in the people of God. He's saying, and he's saying, how can you be, I, I want to address you as spiritual people, but you're still living. You know, like Romans 7, this is your indwelling struggle now. You've got you to come back to who you are now. I've got to feed you with milk instead of solid food because you weren't ready for it. Because you're holding up people and elevating people when you have the mind of Christ. You remember the hymn, The Mind of Christ? It says, may the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of Christ dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through his power. Fourth verse, may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel, seeing only him. And so what we see is this picture throughout Paul's writings of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to have this mind of Christ, is this idea that uh, what we see from Ephesians and Colossians is actually to be filled with the Spirit is to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And so in Ephesians 5.18, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And as a result, will come these, these fruits that will address one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We'll, we'll sing and make melody to the Lord with all of our hearts, and we'll give thanks always and everything to God the Father, and we'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what filled with the Spirit looks like. Well, in Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing other in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered with them. Same idea, but fleshed out a little bit more. You see, what Paul is coming back to when he says that we have the mind of Christ at the end of two, and then this rebuke in chapter three about having certain people that they're following, the appeal at the beginning of the book was to have the same mind as one another. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 1.10, his charge to the church was, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree, that there be no divisions among you, and that you would be united in the same mind. And in the same judgment, for it's reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling or strife. Same Greek word here is used in chapter 3, that there's a problem. And what I mean is this, he says. One of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, or I follow John Piper, or I follow Tim Keller, and I, and I follow them, and I don't like this other person. And the last thing you want is to be at a church where, you know, if one guy's preaching, well, I'm not going to come that Sunday. I don't, I don't really like sitting under their teaching. Ah, you Sunday, I blow that off. That'll be somebody, you know. Sorry, Rebecca's preaching. I thought. <laughs> you know, we should come and we should be always for whoever's preaching because it's not about the person, right? Otherwise, we're setting up a cancer in the church. 
And so Paul's dealing with in the church here a problem. And so what is the solution? The spiritual cure. Well, verse 5 to 9 give us that. And the answer is, is first of all, he says that Apollos and Paul, he says about them, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. He says they're servants. That's just the Greek word for deacons, table waiters. They're deacons. If you praise the waiter who brings you the meal, isn't that not a misplaced praise? Or as John Piper says, if, you, if, if the mailman brings you a love letter, do you fall in love with the mailman? That's for you, Will. <laughs> you don't want them falling in love with you. You just deliver the mail, right? So the idea is that would be misplaced. So if you praise the messenger who's bringing the message and you get saved, that's a misplaced praise. There was once a lady who came to hear George Whitfield, and she loved him so much, and she was so impacted by his message that she went to hear him again the second time, and the second time she heard him, she didn't get anything out of his message. She came to him afterwards, and she was blaming him. And he asked, well, who did you come to listen to the first time? And she thought about it and said, well, I came to hear Christ. He said, well, who are you really coming to hear the second time? And she said, I came to hear you. He said, well, there's your problem, you see. You see, it's so easy to quickly be diverted from where you got the goods from and then to have a misplaced praise. You see, the truth is, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. But God, but God. Anytime in scripture it says, but God, you know you got something meaty. You know you, it's worth underlining. You got a gem. You meant it for harm? God meant it for good. All right? Dead in trespasses and sins, but God raised us up. I planted, Apollos watered, but God. If you don't have but God, what's the end of the equation? I planted, Apollos watered, finished the sentence. What do you got? Nothing. You got lots of water, and you got planting. You ain't got any growth. But God. But God. God's the only one who gives the growth. And so he who plants and he who waters, is anything, is there nothing? Is anything? I love the parable of the growing seed. Preached on it before. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how, because it's a mystery. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. It's miraculous. The earth produces by itself. The only other time that word is used in the whole New Testament is when they're praying, and they're praying for Peter, who's about to be killed, and Peter comes knocking on the door, and they don't even know what in the world he's, that can't be Peter at the door. Well, the reason Peter was at the door is because an angel of the Lord came and unshackled everything, and he came to the gate, and it says the gate opened by itself. How did that happen? But God, but God, 
But God gave the growth. The earth produced by itself. It's a gardening illustration. I remember as a kid, we had a garden every year. And when you're young, you know, you think that garden's like huge. You know, it seemed really big. It was probably about the big as a, one year it was like almost as big as this middle section of the sanctuary. It was a pretty big garden. And one time I was out there working in the garden and I, and I brought in all the, the, the harvest of things that I found. And I told my parents that I enjoyed picking all of the stuff in the garden. The wor- one of the worst things I ever said as a kid. Because I instantly had the job of gathering the stuff every day. That was now my job because I said I liked it. But I learned a lot. So kids, it's okay to say you like it. It's okay. To, I'm, not, I'm not advocating, you know, that you don't tell them what you like. But just be prepared that there will come responsibilities with that. But what you, what, a couple of things you learn about this garden is that after doing it year after year, is that some years you'd have a bumper crop and some years you didn't have hardly anything. And as a gardener, there are certain things that you have to do to make a garden grow. I mean, if you don't get those uh, zucchini bugs off the leaves and crush them and get rid of them, the, the zucchini plant just all of a sudden just falls over. And I was taught you got to get those puppies early. If you get one big zucchini, it sucks the life out of a zucchini plant. Better to have 15 little ones than three big ones. You know, and you learn these little tricks, you know, how to, how to get rid of the suckers on the tomato plants and how to turn the cantaloupe and the watermelon because if they'll rot on the bottom and as they're growing, you've got to keep turning those puppies as they're growing. And, and, you know, one time I was mowing the grass when I was learning how to mow and I, I conveniently or mess, messed up and made a sharp turn too soon and mowed over a bunch of the onions. So they didn't do so well that year because, you know, that was a, that was a human error. And one time, asparagus take two years to grow. And so this farmer came over one day, and my dad was out, and he knocked on the door with his tractor, he was, and he said, you know, your dad wanted me to, to rotor till the garden, he had his tractor with the plow on the back, I said, great, you know, we, we sent him out back, and we encouraged him, you know, go mow that whole thing, and, and my dad came home, he was furious, he was so upset, because it takes two years to get an asparagus crop, and he had only had one year in, and all of his asparagus got dug up and destroyed, and he was dying to get these nice asparagus. Now, my point in all this is that there's certain things that you can do as the gardener. You got to water it, you got to weed it, you got to do certain things, and you can do everything right and not have a great crop. Because there's something about this garden that's beyond you. In other years, it just, you didn't get much. And so the reality is what? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And does that mean that we just sit back and do nothing as the people of God? It means that we pray. We pray for our children. Does it mean we do nothing as parents, that we don't try to instruct them and give them any training? Well, it's but God. Only God can do it. No, we have to be diligent in teaching them the scriptures and teaching them the truth. But we recognize that God's the only one that can bring about a changed life. And when we get that, then it brings us to this wonderful truth that it says, he who plants and he who waters are one. They're one. They're not against each other. Apollos wasn't against Paul, and Paul wasn't against, you know, Apollos or Peter. I mean, they were all one. 
We're all going forward with the gospel, forward with the message. And as a result, he says, we are God's fellow workers. And you think about this in the imagery of of 3 John. In 3 John, we're told about these missionaries that are going out for the sake of the name. They're going out as missionaries. And we're going to hear from a missionary next week. And I hope you don't say, well, that has nothing to do with us. We partner with, with missionaries because we're fellow workers with them. He who stays and the one who goes. This is what 3 John says. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on a journey or send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Meaning they've gotten their support from the church and not from the world. And therefore, we ought to support people like this that we may be fellow workers for the truth. But I've written something to the church, but Diatrophes, who loves to put himself first, doesn't acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's been doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. So what in the world's going on there? You've got this guy named Diotrephes who thinks he's the king and head of the church and he's Mr. Jealousy himself and anybody who comes and might take away any, any monies from the church, he's, he's kicking them. He won't even let him come into the church. He's kicking them out because he loves to be first. He loves to be preeminent, put himself first. He refuses to welcome these brothers and he stops those who want to welcome them and puts them out of the church. Man, you want to talk about splitting. This is a sad thing. And it's a sad thing when churches have this thing where you have one pastor who doesn't like the other pastor, and then they they have this fancy thing, and we call it a splant. You guys know what a splant is? That's that's Christianese for, for split and plant. And it'll get billed as a church plant, but in reality, it was a plant that was in reality more of a split where two pastors couldn't get along, and one guy wanted to be number one, he wasn't content to be number two, and he wants to take people with him who are part of the church, so now we got a splant. And we don't, that's bad news. God gives the increase, God gives the growth, we are one. And I think some of the language that's being borrowed from here is all the way back to Isaiah 61 of this gardening idea, and we're told about Jesus and what he's going to do, and I'll close with this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and Jesus quotes these very words. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who, who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's what Paul's saying here. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Lord, may we all grow up in our salvation to be these oaks of of righteousness, not easily torn up by wind and blown astray, 
but planted deep in you so that when trials and the testing comes, we bear fruit instead of getting embittered. And we pray that this mind of Christ will be in us and that we would put to death the things of the flesh, that there would be no selfish ambition or bitter jealousy, these things that are demonic. But Lord, we pray for the fruit that comes from above, that comes down, and a harvest of peace sown by those who make peace. Help us to be your peacemakers here in the church and beyond, into the workplace, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, that we would truly be salt and light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.